Let's pray together. Father, we are told in Scripture that you have given us a new heart. You're the one, dear God, who has provided for us, who has met our every need, who has influenced our life moment by moment, day by day. You're the one, dear God, who has graced us with people to love and people to be loved by. You're the one, dear God, who has promised to be with us all the days of our life. And one day at an appointed moment in history that you have said, you're going to reach out to us and take us by the hand. And in an instant, you're going to cause us to be in your presence eternally because of your Son, Jesus. What you have done for us through Jesus could happen no other way. We are a sinful people who have been saved through his atoning death. Thank you, dear God, for the grace that you've shown us. Thank you for the knowledge that you have blotted out all of our sins from your mind and from your memory. And that Jesus has taken all of those upon himself. What a loving father. To provide for his children the way you have provided for us. Father, I would be remiss if I didn't remember the fact that many of us, even in this past week, have not lived like people who ought to be thankful for what they have received by grace. All too often, Lord, we raise our voice and we insist on our own way. All too often, dear God, we think about what we want. We do not think about other people, nor do we think about what you want. And all too often, dear God, we want to be recognized and applauded and commended and rewarded for the very things that you have done in and through us. Help us, O Lord, I pray, to come to terms with our fallen nature and to confess the sin of our life and to depend on the shed blood of Christ for that forgiveness. For it is true and absolute. Father, there are people, particularly in China, but other folks also this day, who are left sort of in limbo waiting to see what's going to happen with the disappearance of an airplane. People who have loved and love. People whose lives have been terribly altered. We pray, dear God, that you would minister to them. And we pray that in this event, which has gotten worldwide attention, that you would make yourself known, that many might benefit even from this in a spiritual sense. 
We have needs all around this world, Lord. We have needs in our own church because as we come together, there are always those who are ill, those who are contemplating and facing surgeries, those who are in the midst of recovery. Father, it's a tough time for a lot of folks to live. There are economic stresses, there are family challenges, all sorts of things touch our lives. We live in a country that is no longer the light that it once was. Our light's been dimmed spiritually, Lord, for there are those who have asked you not to be here. And I pray that you would not respond to them with your absence. But instead, I pray, dear God, with power and with grace, that you would make yourself known in our country. Help us not to live this life alone, but help us and others to know you through your Son, Jesus, and to experience the peace even when things around us aren't peaceful. Father, I thank you for the beautiful things in our church. I thank you for the people that you have touched and are touching, and I thank you for the way you use us. And I pray, dear God, this might be just the tip of the iceberg as we become a meaningful part of other people's spiritual life. I ask your blessing on us as I give you thanks for the blessings we've already received. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, to the 15th chapter. The Gospel of Luke, the 15th chapter, and we're going to begin our study with the 25th verse. The Gospel of Luke, the 15th chapter, and we're going to study the 25th through the 32nd verses. For those of you who are with us for the first time, our practice is to, is to find the passage, put our finger in our Bible, and to stop and pray again, asking God to help us as we study, and then for us to keep our Bibles open and follow verse by verse as I move through our study. So I invite you all to do that. The Gospel of Luke, the 15th chapter, and we're going to begin with the 25th verse. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, with our hands empty, we come to you. You've given us an education. You've given us rational minds. There are a lot of things we can do with those gifts, Lord, but we can't penetrate your word with just those gifts. For we need the Holy Spirit that dwells in us as believers to become active and to help us get in touch with what you have said to all these generations that have already passed. Now it's our turn, Lord. We ask you to speak to us and help us to remember what we hear and help us to apply it in our daily lives and be a witness to others. Bless our time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Most of us are familiar with the Genesis account of the first two brothers who came into the world, Cain and Abel. Don't you know they were a joy to Adam and Eve? Don't you know they had all kinds of aspirations about what their sons might do in life, how they might relate to them, the joy that they were going to experience as a family? And boy, that went in the tank in a hurry, didn't it? What happened was that Cain was brought into the world with God-given attributes to be a farmer, to cultivate the ground. Apparently did that pretty well. His brother Abel comes into the world, and he's given a different set of gifts and abilities. And he has flocks, and he has the natural kind of inclination about how to care for animals. There comes a time when they're going to worship God. And in their tradition, they're going to bring gifts to God. Scripture tells us that Cain took some of that which his earth had produced through his labor, and he brought that to God. Abel, and it's an operative word we need to not miss, brought the first of his flock and presented it to God. And if you think for just a moment, it's pretty easy to assume that Cain took something of lesser than first quality and presented it to God, and his brother Abel took that which he treasured the most and gave it to God. And in doing that, they exposed their hearts of what they felt about God. God looked at those two offerings, and you remember his response? He was very disappointed in Cain's offering and very delighted in the offering of Abel. Not because of the offerings themselves, but because of the heart condition. Remember what Cain did? Instead of dealing with his sin, instead of coming to terms with what was going on in his heart, Instead, he turned and became angry with his brother Abel and killed his brother when he had the opportunity. This life was all about reconciliation. This life was all about us coming to terms with the fact that we're not perfect people, that we have offended God, and that what we need to do is be reconciled through Jesus Christ to God and to be reconciled to each other. And in that biblical example, we see the failure of Cain to be reconciled to either God or to his brother. And the way he did it is he sidestepped that responsibility, blamed it on somebody else, got angry, and allowed his anger to become a sin. Our passage today, the second part of the prodigal son, deals with exactly that same concept. Condition of heart, rebellion against God. And in some ways, lack of reconciliation. I want you to follow along as I read. And I invite you to listen very carefully, because God is about to speak to us. I'm reading from the Gospel of Luke, the 15th chapter, starting with the 25th verse. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. 
And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he who devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we have had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You remember the first part of the parable about the younger son? The younger son found himself with a desire in his heart to do what some of you have done and too often most of us have done. Wanted to go somewhere he wasn't supposed to go, wanted to do something he wasn't supposed to do, and became determined to do it. So he sat down and thought of how he could do that, and he came up with a really clever plan. He went to his father, who was a loving father, and he said, Father, what I want you to do is I want you to go ahead and divide the estate now. I want my third right now before you die. I want you to break tradition. I want you to do whatever you have to do, Dad. If you have to sell off part of the flocks or sell off part of the estate, I want mine now. And his dad did it. And immediately he gathered together his earthly goods with no intention of ever coming back home. And he leaves. He goes to a faraway country where there's no accountability. And there he begins to do all of the things he had dreamed about. All of the things that would displease God. His brother said he wasted his money on prostitutes. What he did is he became involved in the world, not in the things of God, and he used up that third of the estate. And then God allowed a famine to come on the land where he was. Isn't that bad luck? That's a joke. Isn't it? How God uses all things to work his purpose out. And the younger brother comes to his senses. He realizes, as he looks at the pods that are being fed to the swine, that he is so destitute, he would like to eat them. And as he comes to his senses, he knows he can go home. He knows his father is going to be waiting. A forgiving and compassionate father. And the younger brother goes back home. As he approaches the house, you remember what his dad did? His dad didn't sit on the front porch and say, now I'm going to get to tell you, I told you so. Instead, what's he do? He runs down the road and meets his son and throws his arms around him. And the very gesture says, I forgive you and I love you. And you are reconciled. And the younger brother, the youngest son, comes back home. 
That's where our passage picks up today. And if you look at verses 25 through 27, you'll see the older son's inquiry. The older son is out in a field working. What's his heart condition when he's working? Is he out there working because he's in a team effort with the family and because he loves and respects his dad? As you read through the balance of the parable, you sense that's not his heart condition. I think his heart condition was very much the Cain syndrome. I'm doing this, but I'm not doing it for the right reasons. I'm doing it as an outward demonstration of what's expected of me. I want you to know that we Christians have a unique Christian work ethic. I hope that you're pleased with the work ethic that you've had and and that your children have. Our Christian work ethic goes something like this. I came into this world with nothing. I had no assurances. I had no guarantees. I had no entitlements. And God has blessed me. God has given us gifts, talents, abilities, opportunities. It's all about God, what he's done for us. So the Christian work ethic goes like this. I'm going to live my life to say thank you to God for what he has done for me and with me. And I'm not going to sit back and say I deserve this. Folks, you and I don't need and don't want what we deserve, do we? That wouldn't be good. We need God's grace, and he has abundantly shown it to us. So how does that work itself out, that Christian work ethic? When we go out into the field to work, we're there saying, you know, I'm given this opportunity, and I need to do this for the Lord. Now, we don't grumble against our employer. We don't grumble against the circumstances. We don't grumble against co-workers. Instead, we have a mindset that is uniquely the result of who we are spiritually. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we could all look back over our life and say, boy, I did that consistently. I wish I could look back and say I did that consistently. But you know what? We can do it consistently from here on. We can have that Christian work ethic. That's not the ethic of this young man. He's out in the field working, and the scripture says, as he's coming from the field, and assuming at the end of the day's work, and he starts to approach the house, he hears music. And he doesn't know why there's music. And there are people at the house. And that's unusual this time of day and this time of the week. So he calls a servant and he says to the servant, come tell me what's going on at the house. What's that all about? And the servant is the one who can bear what may be good news and may be bad. Depends on how it's received. He said, your younger brother has come home. We're having a party. We're celebrating that he's come home. Now, in a spiritual sense, what that is, is a celebration because of reconciliation between the younger son and his father, between the younger son and God. In a human sense, if the older brother were walking in the Spirit of God, he would start to celebrate also. 
He'd say, isn't that wonderful? My younger brother's come to terms with this, has repented, and now he's come home. That's not his response. His response is very much like Cain's response. In verses 28 through 30, you see the response. And it starts out by saying, but he became very angry. Most of us think about anger as a bad thing, and when it's out of control, it is a bad thing. Ephesians 4.26 says, it's okay to be angry, just don't sin. So a friend of mine said to me, you mean I can be angry and get away with it? I said, well, as long as you don't sin. He said, I can keep sinning as long as I, and being angry as long as I walk east and I don't let the sun go down on it. And I said, no, that's not how 426 works its way out. You're not to become a sinner. And you're never to let the sun go down on your anger. You know what that means? When you and your spouse get into an argument, get it resolved before the sun goes down. Get on your knees and ask for forgiveness. Swallow the pride and don't let it be sin. When you start thinking about somebody who's done you wrong, and they very well may have done so, don't stay angry at them overnight, because the next morning you're going to get up and you're going to be angry at them, and you're not going to be able to remember why. And the next day it compounds itself until the relationship is actually broken wide open. So when Paul speaks to the Ephesians, he says, don't let that sun go down on your anger. You know, God got angry. It was a righteous kind of anger. It wasn't a sinful anger. You and I have a right to get anger about some things that are going on in our country. The demise of the family. We ought to have a real anger about that, which would motivate us to become spokesmen to try to do something to change that. We ought to be angry about some of the sin that is absolutely destroying people in our families and people that we know. And that anger ought to cause us to get involved, to be proactive. So, you see, there's a reason why anger can be good. It doesn't have to always be sinful. So, here comes this brother. He's not got righteous anger in him. He's got a sinful kind of anger. And the scripture simply says... But he became angry, and he wasn't willing to go in. He starts to act on that anger. That anger starts to control who he is and how he feels. And what does his dad do? His dad puts his own pride aside. He loves his son. He goes out of the house, and he starts to plead earnestly and say to his son, Reconsider what you're thinking and reconsider how you feel and reconsider what you're doing and come on into the house and join the party. Come into the house and celebrate with us. An attitude. I have a friend, he's with the Lord today, who was a deacon in a former church. And Jim, who was a Reformed alcoholic used to say every now and then, you know, if we could get over having 
stinking thinking, life would be so much better. Do you understand what he meant? Sometimes we entertain thoughts that we shouldn't entertain. Sometimes we start to think about stuff we shouldn't have in our head. And we need, with the help of Scripture and through prayer and the powerful moving of the Holy Spirit, to be able to say no to ourselves and discipline ourselves and not go wherever it is that our stinking thinking has taken us. I can't tell you how often I used to hear Jim say that. And he really did practice that. He practiced it as a reformed alcoholic, and he practiced it in his life. If you look on in the passage, you'll see that the older brother starts to give his rationale for not going into the house. He says, look, in verse 29, For so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. He's saying, Dad, I'm a righteous guy. I've done it right. And then he says, and yet you've never given me even a young goat, let alone the fatted calf. What's happening there, very simply, is he's saying, I don't deserve not to be honored. See where his thinking, thinking is taking him? And you ought to have a party for me, and you haven't done it. And you can hear the resentment in the older son just kind of oozing out. When I read that, I stopped and went back to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about the kind of love that God has for us and the kind of love we're to have for each other. It's not the word eros that is translated love. It's not a self-serving kind of love that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's agape love. It's the kind of love where you give yourself away. And I want you to listen for just a moment to how he says it. He says to us, love is patient. You all know what that word means? Have you ever prayed for patience? That's not something I do often. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Wouldn't the older son have done well to have heard these words? Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know what Paul just said? In contrast, he said, you know, if you do what I'm telling you, you'll be able to love other people and you'll find joy in loving them. But if you don't do these things, if you are jealous, if you're keeping account of evils, if you can recite the evil someone has done you, 
If you are not living the way God wants you to live and thinking the way God wants you to think, the effect is not just on your relationship with the other person. It's on you. What happens is agape love, that potential is squeezed out of you. And you can't love the way God wants us to love. The older brother had been thinking and living about eros kind of love, self-serving, not about agape. And from his behavior, you can start to sense that that agape love has just been squeezed out of him. Verses 31 and 32, you see the father's response. And he says it very succinctly. He said, son... That word speaks volumes. He's saying, you're my son. You're the one who's part of me. You're an extension of me. That will never change. He's saying, I love you just with the word son. You have always been with me. He's really saying, you know, you may have taken a hike, but I haven't. You may have done something emotionally to our relationship, but I haven't. I have always been there for you. I have always loved you. And all that is mine is yours. He's saying, son, this place belongs to you. When I die, it's all yours. Because you're my son. You're my eldest son, so you get two-thirds of the estate. So why are you so upset that your younger brother has come home? I love you. But we had to celebrate. See the word had in 32? We had to celebrate. Why did they have to celebrate? They could have received him home without a celebration. You know why they had to celebrate? It's all about reconciliation. What this life of ours is from the moment we're born is... God calling us into a reconciled relationship through Jesus. And if we miss that, we have missed the purpose of life. So what God does by His grace at a time of His choosing is He reaches out and He calls and says, Scott, this is your turn. Dick, this is your turn. Bob, this is your turn. And he flips all the right switches in us through the power of his Holy Spirit. He gives us a yearning for a relationship. And we who could have cared less begin to care more and more. And we want that relationship. Folks, if you have that urge and have not responded, I encourage you before you leave this place today to say yes to Jesus. And invite him to be your Savior. Knowing that through his shed blood, through his sacrificial death on a cross, that you are a forgiven people. And as forgiven people, you have a place in heaven. Know that he was raised from the dead. And that you and I are heirs. We're part of the family. We've been adopted in. And because of his resurrection... You and I are going to be raised from the dead 
to live eternally. It's all about being reconciled to God. And as people who are reconciled to God, Paul tells us we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. It's more than important than anything else we do. If you're not reconciled with someone, I encourage you to get reconciled with them. Let this be a wake-up call where God is saying, I want you to walk like I walk. I want you to allow me to minister through you. Put yourself aside. Put your pride. Put your jealousy. Put all that aside and love your enemies and be reconciled. i got to ask you a question. I just got to. Can I ask you a question? Assuming there are only two choices. Are you the younger brother? Are you the older brother? Let's pray. Father, I ask very humbly at the beginning that you would bless your word as it came to us. That it would penetrate our hearts and we'd take it home and live it out. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for loving us, Lord. And thank you for allowing us now to walk in the Spirit as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Isn't the Word of God magnificently beautiful? I hope you get as excited over it as I do. And I hope it just finds a place to reside in your heart. And I pray that you'll let it express itself in lieu of thinking, thinking. Okay? God bless you and God keep you, my friends. May his face shine on you. May you walk and talk and allow him to be an influence in everything you do this week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.